Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Jane Coaston. Jane is the senior politics reporter at Vox. And actually, uh, that job change occurred between the time that she and I were talking, which was back in, let's see, mid-October during the MLB playoffs. And now, so congrats to Jane on the new gig. And uh, it was a really, really great chat. We discussed... Oh, gosh, a whole range of issues. Uh, she writes about social issues. She writes about a lot about the conservative movement. She really has a good handle on that and sort of sees both sides. We talked about gun control and its very interesting history, too, that uh, it wasn't always what it was today. Uh, for various reasons, uh, gun control was supported by both sides of the aisle for a while, or and one side of the aisle more then than now, certainly, and uh, that things have changed. She's got a really interesting historical perspective, uh, so her just lays out thoughts in a really cool way. She's written for the New York Times Magazine and a bunch of different other places. Really good with sports, too. Michigan grad and wears it loud and proud for sure. And uh, Jane was terrific. Thank you to Jane uh, for coming on the show for a really, really cool chat, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, some programming notes. And I don't think I've said this publicly, but I am uh, off social media. Uh, I'll g- give a very brief description of that. But essentially was uh, becoming too much of a hassle, too consumptive, too suck me in. Uh, it's funny, since I got rid of it, I've had people email me and say, wow, I wish I could do that. You know what? Tom Verducci's not on Twitter. Michael Lewis isn't on Twitter. I don't think I need to be on Twitter either. Doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. You want to reach me, you can get me through JonahCarry.com, where I'll be uh, posting all articles, uh, and there'll be podcast updates and all that good stuff. And you can continue to read me at CBS Sports uh, and other places, but primarily CBS Sports. And thank you to all the support. For those of you who did reach out, I appreciate it. Everything is cool. I just am uh, done with social media. I uh, don't want it anymore. It was becoming a burden. It was preventing me from doing the things that I wanted to do in my life, including this podcast, but other stuff too. So there you go. Uh, and that's it. Hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It is with Jane Coaston. Enjoy. Yeah. We're talking um, about chickens and bees. Yeah, so my parents keep bees and chickens. And it's very funny because my dad has this whole, um, have you ever read the book, not the movie, but the book Cheaper by the Dozen? No. Um, so the original book was about um, this family, like an actual family of like a ton of children. And one of the things that they really operated on was that they, I believe it was called, here, I'll look it up. Yes. Um, Cheaper by the dozen. Hang on a sec. I think it's like, it's one of two terms, and I want to get it right. No, no problem. Well, but it's interesting while we're talking about the hippie movement, the idea that, well, you know, you disconnect from society and I don't need electricity or whatever, and there's that old argument put forth that if you go far enough left or right, obviously oh, yeah. politics no, you, are very different, yeah, you but you will, just, you, you're out. It's a horseshoe. Yeah. It is a horseshoe, and I've realized that more. <clears throat> okay. Um, ah, yes. So it's the Gilbreth family. There were a bunch of movies, and mm-hmm. so... Um, 
I didn't see the movie either for what it's worth. Yes, um, and there were a couple of movies. And so, okay, so their mother was Lillian Gilbreth, who is a real-life pioneering industrial organizational psychologist. Okay. And so she, in the 1940s, was considered to be a genius in the art of living. And so the entire thing was that you would basically do everything on a time, like a timetable. Mm-hmm. Like, like every five minutes you had to go do something like specific. And this is for a, like a large family. Sounds borderline cultish. It was very, it's one of those things that I, I was very entertained that then when they re- rebooted the movie, they basically were like, oh, these people just have 12 children and not like the extremely specific. Cause it was this idea that you would take kind of the ideas of automation yeah. and like Henry Ford and you would take that into your own family life. And so it's always my, my, my mom loves that book. Hmm. And so there, you know, my parents now keep bees and chickens. And then when my dad is ever talking about the chickens, he refers to them in this very like, ah, yes, like egg producer one is having a great day. And she's oh, really, really, she's really inspiring all the others to which I say, I think you guys need slightly more to do, but it's, it's funny because they're, you know, they've been married since 1979, okay. um, so they'll be 38 years November 4th. Amazing. Um, and it's, it's very funny in kind of an era of, you know, I know a lot of, obviously, a lot of my friends have, like, divorced parents or something like that, but my parents are, like, irritatingly in love. That's great. Uh, which, it, it is great. Yeah. But it's just very funny because I feel as if, like, my parents do not fight because my mom will be like, we should do this, and my dad is like, I agree. And so I think the only remote argument they ever had was the fact that my dad loves Steely Dan and my mom hates Steely Dan. <laughs> and I'm on my dad's side. Steely Dan's pretty great. The chickens thing is interesting because I've only known one person who's super duper into chickens and talks about chickens all the time. Yeah. But it's funny you say the egg producer wanted all that stuff yeah. because this person definitely yeah. values that. But Rocky and Bullwinkle right. and Chicken, it was like names them and... It's a personality thing, and if I gave you 39 million guesses, you would not know who that person is. That person is Kurt Schilling. Really? That's right. Kurt Schilling is more into chickens than anybody's into anything. No, no, you can do with that information whatever you want. I feel like I've, I've, I've a, <coughs> I have a series of increasingly more involved questions. That well, I used to work with Kurt Schilling at ESPN right, at, right, on right. Baseball Tonight. I feel like that's, there's something about chickens. I feel like it's similar to owning, in some ways, kind mm-hmm. of like the hipster or hippie way of owning cats in that chickens do not care no, about you. No. But you can put a lot of emotional labor into chickens mm-hmm. and like the same way you into cats. And I know I've met cats who are like pretty friendly, but I'm also like, how friendly are you actually or is this just a ploy? Like with dogs you're like, I know you love me. Yeah. Like you're a dog. Like you know, there's never been a story I don't think of a cat who like sat by its owner's grave for fifteen years because the cat would have been like Eh, sure, it was well, food here. <laughs> I got it. But, um. But I mean, it feels like as humans, maybe, we, I, I don't know, we put ourselves out there as dogs to be loved, but maybe inside we're cats anyway. I don't know. Yeah, we're yeah. Cynical. I don't know. But, um, yeah, so my parents also keep bees. I think that they just, there's something like they've got a garden and cherry trees, and they're just very like. But that's nice. It's, it, they're very self contained. It's, it's, they're, my, you know, my dad's never been on an airplane. Um, really? Yep. Never. Where do they live? Uh, Cincinnati. Okay. And my mom, the last time I think she was in an airplane, I believe it was when she went to Italy on a high school trip in 1963. Holy cow. Yep. So it's been very funny because we keep, you know, my wife is from New Zealand and there's been talk like, oh, if they went. And then I'm just like, we would have to do, can you imagine 
Like, I know people who, you know, they had not flown much since, like, 9-11. Yeah. Can you imagine, like, in 1963, getting on an airplane was literally, like, you drive up, basically, to the airplane, and somebody's like, here you go. And they give you, like, was, steak and lobster and stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and it's only, you know, it's, I actually have a book about this, that um, the skyjacking era of 1970s. Oh, yeah. Which, it's always interesting that, like, if something kind of... Like nineteen, the 1970s were weirdly like our worst time as a society. Just I don't think general. there's any question. Everything yeah. it's DB Cooper all the time. Oh yeah, that's what it was. And just the fact that like there was a there was a kid who he, um, a like 13 or 14 year old boy actually from Cincinnati, he hijacked a plane to impress a Swedish ballerina. Come on. Yep. 13. Yeah. I know that. But also the fact that hijacking a plane apparently took because they would just immediately and that was the issue is that there were no like. There's no such thing as air marshals or anything like that. Though air marshals today, you know, they're, it's so expensive to have air marshals on planes, and they normally don't actually, like, they don't catch terrorists, really. But, like, mm. in the 70s, the interest of the air, like, the airline was just, like, get the plane on the ground, get everybody home safe, give whatever, whoever that is, whatever they want. And so if you hijacked a plane and were like, I want you to fly this to Beirut, I want you to fly this to Yemen, I want you to fly this to London or something like that, they'd just do it. Wow. And largely, like, the airline would be like, fine, like, in the interest of other planes being able to keep going, and in the interest of these people being able to get off the plane, and hopefully, because, you know, there isn't really a concept of, like, suing, suing, like, the airline in general for this, like, for this having taken place. Right. They'll just let it go. But it, it's so interesting to me because my, you know, one of the first plane bombings took place in like the mid 1960s, this hijacking era. And so my mom's perception of what it's like to go get on an airplane is like, you know, at this, it would be literally like giving someone from like 1912, like someone, if a survivor of the Titanic, a DVD player. Like, yeah. What, what are you going to do with that? Oh, and okay. so, you know, I'm just like, I don't even know, like, I don't even know if my parents have passports. Like, what would, I don't know what that would be like. And so it's just, it's funny because especially living in D.C., you know, this is such a transient place where everyone travels and everyone has traveled. And then whatever, you know, I I joke about this sometimes that, like, with, you know, current events or specifically stuff that happens online, I call my mom and I'm like, have you ever heard of this? And she's like, absolutely not. Like, though, though. My mom has heard of pretty much any actor who's ever appeared on a PBS show. So she was like, oh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, because Catherine Zeta-Jones used to do all these shows because she's from Wales. Yeah. And so she did all these Welsh dramas back in, like, the early 90s. <laughs> so as far as my mom knows, Catherine Zeta-Jones is one of the most famous people to have ever lived. This is an incredible frame of reference. Exactly. It's like living in a time capsule. It's like Kimmy Schmidt stuff or yeah, something like yeah. that. Yep, it is. I don't Just know why like, Kimmy Schmidt is my time capsule go-to. I guess that's where <laughs> no, we're at it now. Works. It, it works. works. Yeah. It does work. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I'm I I don't know. I mean I I've not thought about the plane hijacking stuff in quite a while. But I I was on a jag. Sometimes I'll just start reading stuff. I'll yeah. just keep going all day. And there was a day when I just did that. And yeah, it wasn't that long ago, and it had nothing to do with technology. As you said, it was just like mores. This is how they decided to handle this stuff. Yep. And and like it's flying a plane is maybe the most mundane thing that I do. And which it, it's funny, and I do it so. all the time. I, I, I do not, so I'm aware of how planes work. Like, I get, like, the angle of attack. I get, like, yep. the kind of motion versus gravity. I understand that. Mm-hmm. I don't, 
I do not. And so I am, it's funny because I've actually now, I can do, like, if it's a super long flight, like the flight from uh, San Francisco to New Zealand is about like, 13 and a half hours. Yeah. But the thing is, you're on a plane that's like the size, like a massive plane. Yeah, it's a city. Yeah, it's yeah. a city and it's really big and everyone's kind of like, Air New Zealand, the greatest airline there is, because they give you, you know, it's basically every movie that's come out in the last, like, 12 years, and you're just like, you know, I've watched, I remember I watched the most recent, like, Fast and Furious movie on one of those flights, and it just, like, all these moments where I'm like, I'm just gonna watch this movie that I, like, heard about, but I'm here, like, I can't go anywhere. Which I think is always the, the most difficult part of that flight, is that there's always a moment, 11 hours, and then when I'm like, I'd like to get off now. And you can't. And that's it. That's You're just on this plane forever. So you only fly long, long distances, but well, you don't fly much within I the States? Don't, I, I, I have flown much within the States, but there's something... It's not even... I don't like... Like, I don't like... Um, there's a writer for National Review named Charles C.W. Cook, who mm-hmm. writes a lot of really interesting mm-hmm. things. He is also super into roller coasters, and honestly, those are the people... Like, when he talks about that, I'm like, I can't even look at that. Like, no, I, me neither. I do not like the sensation of dropping. And so turbulence, it's very funny. We were once um, flying back from New Zealand, and there was a cyclone um, over... We were flying over Fiji, and there was a cyclone underneath us. So there's all this turbulence. And everyone else on the plane, completely fine. Me, losing it. Like, I was watching Goodfellas, and I'm thinking, like, well, you know, if I... Do- <laughs> like, literally... It's an interesting choice at that point. It's just the... It was the point where Henry is telling Karen that, like... Nobody who doesn't want to goes to prison. And they're having that entire conversation because Karen's just gone to that weird makeup party mm-hmm. where all the other women are like talking about hating their children and putting on weird makeup. And she's just like, I don't understand these people. And he's like, Karen! And everything's <laughs> fine. So I'm like, this is what I'm going to be watching when I die. I like, like that very much. That's... And also, it, I was like, one of the comments, I'm like, of course it's Goodfellas, a movie that I've seen like 17 times. And it just... It's always good, though. Of course. Yeah. It's just, and then I, 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 on a side note to that, I really like that Scorsese was like, I'm just going to make Casino, which is kind of the same movie, but not. I mean, like, Sharon Stone, fantastic. Yep. The movie, great. Complicated, but great. But it's sort of, kind of the same movie in a way. In a ramble. Of just being like, I'm in this situation, I thought I knew everything that I needed to know, I understood what I needed to be, I understood what my role was, and then everything went crazy. With Goodfellas, I think of Ray Liotta, and with Ray Liotta, I think of the greatest rap lyric of all time. Which is? Which is, uh, like Ray Liotta, there's no escape. And the person who uh, uttered that line is Shaquille O'Neal. That is the greatest rap lyric of all time. I uh, I loved how Shea Serrano described Shaquille O'Neal as a mountain who does advertisements. Yes. But it's so funny because, like, if you... I was recently, because of reading... um, Shay's book, I was watching all of these, like, NBA highlights, and I will tell you, like, in comparison to the NFL, which will, you know, if you put together a highlight package of anybody, you have to do it in, like, a, such a subtle way, or else the NFL will be like, you can't have this. The NBA is like, sure, we will put together a 20-minute, oh, yeah. and it's, it makes Shaquille O'Neal look like the most dominant athlete, because I think for But he kind of was. Like, just the idea of being, like, that big, that strong... But, like, having moves. Oh, yeah. Like, post moves. Because mm-hmm. you wouldn't think you would need to have post moves when you're that big. Because I think that, you know, I think that that's some... But, like, he had a fluidity to his movement 
that it's kind of ridiculous to imagine. And then also I have to remember that like not he's like big to other basketball players. Yes. I think that was one of the funny things about um I went to Michigan and I remember like watching so many Michigan games with like Nick Stauskas as well. No, seventy yep. six years. Canadian. And I remember thinking like this he looks like about like to me, I, I knew he wasn't obviously my height, but I thought he would be like in my head I think I pictured him as being like five eleven or something like that. And I'm like, nope, nope, six five. Like everybody is secretly yeah, you know, I remember being in uh, Reagan Airport, like the George Mason basketball team was there, yeah. and it just is like it's just like it's George Mason, so it's not like big deal or anything like that. But everybody's still like six seven, Hi. and it just is like it's just interesting that there's just this this separate world of basketball where everyone is tall. But then, are you tall to are there are there basketball players like I'm sure like Manute Bull was tall to like. Holy crap, like, you know. Bill Walton or whatever. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. Yeah, but, like, it would just be interesting to be, like, tall for the NBA. Like, Yao was or something like that. Because I think that there definitely is a moment once you hit seven feet where then you're, like, then even Kobe is, like, you're pretty tall. But then he is also really tall. Like, we are talking, like, the top percentile of height. Which I've always thought is so funny. There's just, like, this entire, like, if you watch every single NBA game, Virtually everyone on the court is at least a foot taller than you are. That's normally true. I'm six foot four. Okay. And I met Shaq and I did a podcast with Shaq. And it's the first time I ever felt small. And I, right. I've done other, I've met people who are tall. It wasn't the height that got me, it was the weight. He is, uh, not the weight, the, 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 the mass. mass. Yeah. He's three times larger than I. Right. He doesn't literally weigh three times more than I. No. Do. But I'm thin and he's just not thin. Right. He just, his shoulders are like this wall to this wall. Right, which I just, I just remember watching, uh, there used to be on MTV that show Cribs. Yes. And I remember he had like a... Sp- his bed, yes! <laughs> his bed! His <laughs> giant bed, which I just was like, I had... I was just talking about the bed. Yeah, so I just was like, I, I need to know. One, a circular bed is one of those things that you think is like, that is a great idea. Yeah. But I, I have, I really think beds <laughs> need like edges and a top well, and a bottom. Yeah. Unless you're a dog. Because no one sleeps in a circle unless you're a dog. And I just I just couldn't imagine, like, how would you... Where is up and where is down? I, again, it was one of those moments where I was like, this is something... I remember watching at the time, like, I'm going to contemplate this for the next, like, 15 years of my life. And I have. I've been asking these questions for years. I literally just had a conversation. It was, like, a couple of days ago. I was just talking about, a few days ago, whatever, Shaq in this bed. And, and it just... It, I, I can't... I'm so tickled by the fact that you're bringing this up. Like, I'm sure there were, he probably showed his cars or whatever. Right, yeah, I have no memory of that. Because, like, on Cribs, the cars part where I was just like, you know, it was always, they show you the cars, the kitchen, it depends on who it was, but lots of The trophy they, room. The, the trophy jerseys, room. Yeah. They'd open the fridge and be like, I don't know what's in here. Yeah. Which I, that was always a thing where I was just like, you don't know what's in your fridge. And now being, like, married, I'm like, I'm also not entirely sure what's in my fridge. Like... You know, when I was, like, when I first moved here, and I was, like, living with roommates, like, I knew exactly how many of everything I owned in the world, and now I'm kind of like, oh, (laughs) apparently we have onions, maybe, I don't know, but, um, yeah, and then they'd get to the bed, and they'd be like, this is where the magic happens, which I'm like, I don't want to think about that or hear about it. Thank you, Lil Wayne. I appreciate that information. (laughs) And then you get to Shaq's giant circular bed. And I'm just like, I just don't understand how that, like, MTV Cribs raised a lot. Like, I am certain someone, I hope someone like Wesleyan or something has written, like, 
a really involved paper about what MTV Cribs told us about, like, 2002. Because I've, I've, uh, I've told people that, like, when I watch movies that took place in, like, 2003, it feels like they took place in, like, 1870. Kinda, I don't yeah. know what it is. Because it's, it's funny because you would Well, think, we didn't have these. That's a big That's thing. true. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing is that I feel as if there was an era of... I mean, obviously, there still is an era of, like, conspicuous consumption. Mm-hmm. But in, like, pre, you know, economic collapse, it's much more obvious. Like, I remember, you know, in high school where people were, you know, in Ohio, you still could, like, there still was such thing as McMansions, and people were still buying, like, very large homes yep. for, like, $150,000. Which, I mean, in D.C., $150,000 will get you, like... Uh, a condo, <laughs> maybe, but like, it's so interesting because uh, my wife and I we've gotten into watching all these Cold War movies, so we watched like Three Days of the Condor and things yep. like that. Which is funny because Three Days of the Condor one, R- Robert Redford's super mean to this woman who's going to help him, and then they sleep together, and I'm like, that's the seventies, like I'm going to be really mean to you, and then we're going to have sex. Um, Are we but, sure that's not a little bit now, too? Yeah, yeah. but I'm like, God, we gotta, we gotta work on that, of just yeah. being like, yeah, I'm gonna break into your apartment, and then make you help me, and then we'll have sex. That's then, not really mean, that's, uh, menacing. Yeah, it's pretty menacing. <laughs> but then, at the end of the movie, it's all handled by the fact that he goes to the basement of the New York Telephone Company, and like calls all these, like, assassin people using actual phone wires. And I was just like, this movie would be over in 15 minutes now. Like, it just would not make any sense. Well, there's no Seinfeld. No, no. Well, especially because the beginning of the movie, he's working for, like, it's a CIA front, but he basically, his job is that he reads all day. He just reads everything. This is the best. And looks for things that could possibly be used for something, which I was like, Please tell me that you like if he had like a decent healthcare plan. That's the best job. He's a reference is. librarian. He basically is, and, like, which my, is amazing. My dad was a librarian for a long time. And yeah. it's, a, it's a good job, of he, course. Um, but and then you know he leaves to go to lunch, and it takes a long time. And then he comes back, and everybody's dead. And he's like, "Okay, what happened?" And then the CIA <laughs> people are like, "You should come in," but like the CIA also wants to murder him, and everyone wants to murder him. But just all of these things where I was like, "What if he'd like been able to like." call in like Uber Eats or something like that or just all those things where I'm like this movie would be not it does not make sense but um no it's it's funny to just think about but somehow that movie not the phone stuff mm-hmm. it's just like it's in New York it's in parts of New York that kind of look kind of like parts of New York now yeah. but like watching a movie that was made in like 2002-2003 feels like it was made like this other universe where it's just like Especially movies that had to take place, you know, are taking place in high school, where it's yeah. trying to be reflective of, like, young people fashion. A young people fashion that I don't know if ever actually existed for, like, people besides attendees of VMAs, but it right. just, it's funny. But um, it also reminds me, we also watched uh, with a friend of ours, which Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, it's top ten for me. Maybe It's I a great movie, except one of those moments where you're like, clearly it was edited at a time where people had really long attention spans. Because do you remember the whole scene where it's uh, raindrops keep falling on my head and Paul Newman's just riding around on a bike with yeah. Robert Redford's girlfriend? It's a montage. That takes ten minutes. Does it really? It takes <laughs> four ever. For one thing, raindrops keep falling on my head is not, it's not one of the great songs of our time. No. Two... I'm like, you guys are in actual peril. Like, you're both, like, the 
Authorities have been looking for yeah. one or both of you for this whole time, but no, no, no. We've got plenty of time for this extremely long. We've got baguette ride. and cheese. We got to chill it out a little. Yeah, bit. <laughs> and just riding around on a bike as if neither of us have ever seen a bicycle before. And I'm aware that the bicycle at this timeline would have been like super new and exciting. And we've just kind of gotten away from like the you know the earliest era of the bicycle. My dad is a huge bike person, okay. so we went to the Tour de France every year. Oh, that's cool. We. <clears throat> I've learned a lot about bicycling history and, like, the best Tour de France racers and things like that. And I think no one took the Lance Armstrong thing harder than my dad did. Because it went from being, like, this amazing story to being, like, oh, he's really good at cheating. Every like, athlete is good at cheating. Every athlete cheats, man. No problem with it. And Barry Bonds is my guy. Yeah. Love no. no well, I think, I'm agnostic, but he's my guy. Right. No, I think that it, it's interesting, especially with something like the Tour de France, because the reason, like, because everyone cheats, everyone else has to cheat. Yeah. And it just, because, and everyone always has cheated. Now, it used to be, like, with, you know, essentially speed. And there was an incident in, like, the early 60s in which someone had a heart attack as a result of speed, like, while bicycling. And he's, like, bare, you know, there's a memorial to him on the mountain where he died. Oh, wow. And, but, like, it's, the Tour de France is one of those things, like, if you came up with the concept now, people would be like, I don't know if that's such a good idea. But because someone came up with it in, like, 1912, yeah. people like, that's... Fine. All right. We go along with it. Yeah. You know, you get, it's like the first marathon. Um, One of my favorite YouTube videos, uh, John Boyce, who writes Raspi Nation, he did uh, this video, like the eight, the, uh, I believe it's the uh, 1904 Olympics in St. Louis Mm -hmm. and how it is like the worst, most ridiculous marathon ever because one thing, one athlete's coach thought that the best thing to do was to dehydrate the athlete, and like, not a lot ha- didn't have any water or anything like that, and like the route was really unclear, and people were like drinking wine like while running, and like it just was it just a complete calamity. Just I was in utter S- calamity. I was in St. Louis this summer for a wedding. My buddy Benjamin Hockman uh, was a sports columnist, and he was showing me around. Like we were kind of in a place called Clayton, which is like a, one of the Western suburbs, I think. Right, yeah, I, I used to live in St. Louis. Oh, okay, cool. And he's showing me, like, okay, this is where this was, this is where, this is where the Olympics was, and I'd forgotten. It's like, the Olympics, here, here, like where the yeah. bed, bath, and beyond, like, yep. that's where the Olympics, and I just, there's something about that, I'm aware that cities were kind of, was more of a flat concept, right. and it wasn't like, here's Paris, here's LA, here's New York, here's everything else, but still? Yeah, it... It just doesn't... I mean, it's the same thing. Um, one of the best books ever is The Devil in the White City, which is about uh, the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago and also about the serial killer H.H. H. Holmes, who was like, I shall take advantage of this World Fair, World's Fair by killing lots of people. Yeah. And uh, probably the movie uh, movie rights have been optioned, and Leonardo DiCaprio is going to play H.H. H. Holmes in a movie made by Martin Scorsese, which I'm like, I don't know how that's going to go because that could... that that. H.H. H. Holmes was really scary and killed people in a murder house, and that was scary. But anyway, a lot of those buildings, like, you know, they built, they worked so hard in the World's Fair. Because at the time, like, it's this massive deal. You have millions of people coming through, and a oh, yeah. lot of those buildings did not make it for about another. Like, they, they were, like, they burned down or something happened within a year. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think that there are remarkably few buildings standing from that time. And it's just, like, from, like, St. Louis and Chicago in that era were considered to be kind of, like, they could be the new New York. Yes. 
And Chicago was totally at an inferiority right. complex and was going for it all the way. Yeah, it was. It was. And it's interesting because the people who worked to construct some of the buildings of the World's Fair inspired kind of the buildings of, say, like the Lincoln Memorial. And just this kind of idea of this Neo-Grecian, everything has to be white. Because, and it works because it looks timeless. Like, yes. if you see, you know, documentaries... Walk around DC. Yeah. Yeah, if you go to the mall, I mean, even the concept of the mall. Yeah. Because there used to be a train station on the mall. And they were like, maybe we should move this. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you should. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Like, uh, having lived in St. Louis, it's a very, it's an odd city. It was a good city. It's a very cheap city to live in. Yes, that's definitely true. Um, you talked about Charles Cook. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the things that I wanted to get to was, well, there's a couple things I want to get to. Number one, I think you've, and you've written about this, that we end up siloed in what we consume and, and who we interact with and whatever. And you, especially on Twitter, especially on social media, you talk a lot about the points of view of National Review, yeah. of people who have, who come from the right side of the spectrum. Right. First of all, on a very basic level, are we missing out if we're not reading? Like, I mean, obviously there's going to be crappy right. stuff at some point. Right, exactly. Are we missing out by not reading the National Review, by not reading the Federalist, by not reading a lot of these... I don't know if you're missing out by not reading. Maybe the fabulous. No. That's that's a separate issue. Yeah, I guess um, so. I think National Review and I think like Weekly Standard. Yeah. Um, I think commentary. I think the American Conservative is fascinating because it comes from a position uh, positionality that re rejects neoconservatism, and so they are just they, they are well. But they should by that definition. But they're like Rod Dreher is extremely religious. Yeah. And oh. so also they you know they reject like they're really focused on writing a lot about the famine in Yemen and how we absolutely should not go to war again ever. And yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there are moments. It's interesting where you find these kind of points of contact. Yeah. And so. One thing I think is interesting is that I feel as if we've been, I don't agree with, there have been a lot of people writing that just basically 2016 showed us that like liberals are just wrong and we have to go out and f learn about how wrong we are by going to like, you know, Youngstown, Ohio and oh, yeah. learning about how people don't like us. Don't go to, like, don't go to West Baltimore. Don't go to the South side of Chicago. Yeah, no, no, no. You should totally like, go there. Yeah, it's like no one wants to go to, you know. Anacostia or something like that. No. Though Anacostia is great. There's a lot of stuff going on there. There's cool parks. The Washington Nationals are there. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, but it's, and I, I, I think that's interesting. Like, you know, in 2008, I don't know if there were conservatives being like, ah, yes, we must go to like, you know, downtown Cincinnati and find, figure this out. We gotta understand why people think this, like, Barack Obama's a good idea. Um, cause I, but, cause I think that that it's been, there's a siloing, but then there's also this, um, and it was, I'll, I'll bring up Charles again, but he's yes. talked about how everyone kind of assumes that the reason why the other side thinks what they do is because they're evil. And so progressives think that conservatives think the way they do, not because they're like, this is what I actually believe, but, but because I'm like, I'm just going to screw over liberals. And then oh, obviously, I think, the right, I think the right thinks that uh, kind of en masse about the left, that like... Probably yeah. some people think that too. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so I think that it's important to kind of understand and think about those viewpoints. And like, you know, you can, I think that a lot of things that are written in National Review are wrong. Yes. But I need to read them to know that, to not just be, not, I, I'm not going to reject something out of hand. I'm going to say like, it's wrong and this is why. This is silly. This is ridiculous. This is a historical. This is based on an understanding of, you know, human and humanness that is incorrect and that's why it's wrong but to just 
you know, to just reject, like, oh, it's a national review, ergo it's wrong. And I'm like, well, no, that's not, that's not fair. And so I do think that it's important to kind of read, and I think it, it makes your arguments better. Like, why do yeah. you think the things that you do? For instance, you know, I think that that's something, um, I've tweeted about this, and I think Holly Anderson disagrees with me, but I think one of the best things you can do, um, um, she might agree with me, I can't remember, but one of the best things you can do to get to be a good political writer is to have started in writing about sports. Mm. Because then you can understand at, like, at the most obvious level what it's like to write something that people will get really, really, really upset about. Yeah. Not because of you doing anything, but because they're like, but I love the Tennessee Volunteers. I know they're bad, but I love them. Or like, you know, but but I really like this pitcher. And then you're like, but he's terrible. Yeah. But I like him. And like, well, that that's on you. That's your own separate problem. And so I think that being able to talk across across kind of borders and boundaries of opinion, which is something I think you kind of have to do in writing about sports. Yeah. Because, and especially because the, the opinions people have in sports are even more visceral or based than almost than they are in politics. Like, Maybe. you're going to meet someone who's like, you know, I'm an Alabama fan because, like, everyone in my entire family has been Alabama fans. And I, you know, I will go, you know, angrily poison trees over it. And so, <laughs> you know, that that's, in some ways, having, like, started dealing, you know, started out kind of thinking and dealing with that means that when people are like, I voted for Trump because everybody in my family was a Republican, I'm like, all right, well, that's that's on you. And that's I think that that's what gets me, um, and that's what I'm so fascinated by, because I think a lot of times people's political allegiances are not clearly as simple as they say they are. Hmm. So, you know, but, you know, then you'd be like, but Trump wasn't a Republican. Trump has changed his party registration like four times in the last 20 years. You mm. know, the only political position Trump has held to with any degree of commitment for the, since like 1990s that he thinks the Canadian healthcare system is a p- potential model for the U.S. And it's, in, you know, I think that that kind of, yeah, I think that that... No disagreement here. That kind of gives me a sense of like, there, there are more questions to ask, but I have to know the positions first I have to know what, you know, what conservatism looks like. I have to know what these political ideas look like. And then to understand why people would be like, well, I've always been a conservative, but I'm going to vote for this guy who definitely isn't. So I think that that's, that's something that's helpful. And especially because I think, you know, I think it's really hard on Twitter because everybody's mean and trying to win an argument. Yes. And then, you know, you get off Twitter and you actually meet them and you're like, oh, well, you're fine. Like... You don't have to be best friends with them, but they're like a member of the human race most of the time. This is, by the Some, way, sometimes they're bots. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are not real people. This, by the way, is why John Boyce is the best. He doesn't make arguments. He's, nope. It's a surrealist, lovely nope. landscape, nope. but maybe the best follow that there is. I, I will say that he made a video um, about people who play like the World Series of Poker. Yes, where it just. <laughs> I don't even really understand how poker works, but after watching it, I was just like, "This is the worst." The, to participate in this sport is the worst thing I can imagine. Why? Now, it just is because you can't do anything. You can be a good poker. Oh, player. you're gonna be second guessed. Yeah, yeah, but like you, you know, if the cards are dealt in a certain way or things don't happen a certain way, you have lost thousands, even millions of dollars mm-hmm. because of. The universe? Oh, it's all random chance. It's, oh, that yeah. would drive me. 
That would I would that would drive me out of my mind. You want to wear clothes that fit. You want to wear clothes that look good. Indochino's got you covered. They're fantastic. I've used them myself. Showrooms all over North America. You can fill out an application online. I went to one of their showrooms, and it was great. They fitted me with a wonderful suit that fit perfectly much, much better than off the rack for my kooky build. They made it happen. It was great. And you can choose from hundreds of top-quality fabrics. Personalize your suit just the way you want it, whether it's for work, a wedding, special occasion. Maybe you just want to look good. They're really, really excellent. As I said, it was hassle-free. It was inexpensive. It was easy to do, and they made the process seamless. And I've got this rad suit that I've worn to all kinds of things, events, weddings, work stuff, what have you. And get this. This is even better. Joan Carey Podcast listeners can get Indochino's best deal ever, $359 for any premium suit when you enter the promo code Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, but you should know that, during checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, plus the shipping is free. Go to Indochino.com, I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code Jonah for any premium suit, just $359 and free shipping. An incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. So you just wrote, we talked about conservative media, yeah. you just wrote about Ben Shapiro. Yep. And uh, he basically said something to the effect of, uh, well, I have it in quotes, actually. Actually, Columbus killing Native Americans was good. Is what, no, he didn't quite say that. But more, more or less, that's what he said. And I'm fascinated by this idea. I'm not sure if it's true or not. But the perception of the perception is that you can come out with an argument on the right, and it's going to gain a lot of traction than any single argument on the left. Because you're, I don't know if it's because you're appealing to emotion. I don't know if it's because you're using ad hominem attacks. I'm not sure, but it seems like there's more momentum. Whereas it's hard to find a universality of agreement right. on the left. First of all, do you agree with that? And secondly, if that's the truth, then why is that? I agree with that in parts, and I think, and here's why. Yeah. I think for the right, because okay, are you if you're on the left? Yeah. Are you Chris Hayes on the left? Are you Bernie Sanders on the left? Are you Young Turks on the left? Are you Glenn Greenwald left the country and now are dealing with rescue dogs while writing for The Intercept on the left? I used to love Glenn. Yeah. And I still, I still follow him on He's, Twitter. It's worthwhile because, I mean, it's one of those things like, you got to investigate your ideological priors. And then a lot of times he's talking about dogs. And I'm like, that's nice. That's good. Um, I think there's a lot of different ways to be on the left. Now, there are also a lot of different ways to be on the right. Mm. However, a lot of those entities have kind of grouped themselves together in such a way that they're like, okay, our primary objective is fighting the left. Because they believe, you know, even with having the political power that the right has, which I think at this point the right is as powerful as it's been since, like, you know, the... Eh, like obviously Reagan had kind of the first term issues with the economies, but like I'll go for like 1984, 1985. Yeah. Like obviously, like the moral majority isn't in as so kind of isn't rising as it was at the time, but I think that's a separate thing that also has to do with kind of the nature of television and the nature of our own perceptions of religion and what evangelicals want and believe now. Right. But I think that there's a sense that because you know. If you, and I, I got, I heard this argument because I think uh, Ben responded on the podcast, you know, if you, you know, you see like Hollywood, like Harvey Weinstein, you know, he's donating tons of money to liberal causes while being a gross, awful person. Yes. But this, you know, he's a liberal. Like, mm-hmm. Jimmy Kimmel is a liberal. Like, every single night, you know, late night host, liberal. Every single, like, basically mm-hmm. most, well, Fallon. 
Fallon, I think he Fallon really... Has, no, he's a vessel. I think he really believes in this idea. And it's, it's interesting because I kind of respect it. That just like, what if we could just have fun? And I do think that that's something that's worthwhile because there are times, you know, if you've just finished watching, like, you know, like, like let's say you're a normal liberal person yeah. um, and you've watched Chris Hayes and then maybe you watch Rachel Maddow and then you watch Lawrence O'Donnell if you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. And then you watch your local news and then you watch Colbert. That is like four hours of just like people talking about Trump. And um, Dave Weigel, who's a reporter for the uh, Washington Post, and he tweeted something about how there is this, um, the Free Beacon put out this, um, they had talked to, like they'd done a focus group of Democrats and talking about how, like, oh, Democrats, you know, they, all they ever hear from their leaders is talking about Trump. And Dave was like, well, that's not true, because I interview all these leaders all the time, and they're always talking about the economy, or they're talking about health care or something like that. But the liberal media is just talking about Trump all the time, because it sells. Like, Rachel Maddow's ratings are outstanding right now, probably for the first time in a long time. You know, this is someone who came from, like, Air America or something like that. But Rachel Maddow's ratings are outstanding because... You know, I think she's a great host, but also that she gave, like, if you, she will talk about Trump every single day. Yeah. And getting into, like, the real, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of entertained by how Rachel will start out being like, in ancient Sumeria, and then 20 minutes later be like, and that's why Mike Pence is terrible. <laughs> and just like, I'm like, I don't know how you got there, Rachel, but you did. Um, but I think that, you know, if you are of the right, and obviously you've kind of got, You've got Fox News, but I think Fox News is kind of, it's almost less of the right than it is of Trump. Because I think yeah. that they really just bought in hard on that. Yeah, it and wasn't, it, Fox News wasn't this when Bush was in office. No, no. And I think that they've just decided, like, this is what this is going to be. Yeah. And it's, you know, that's of their decision. But if you are, you know, if you listen to Ben Shapiro's podcast or something like that, you know, most entities that are, a, you know, that you might look to, like, you know, magazines or television or something like that are, te- uh, are either in, like, liberal or kind of controlled by liberals. And so I do think that there's a sense that there's kind of, you know, because liberals won, we, everybody fights among themselves. Like, the, like, Bernie Hillary thing last oh, year. Yeah. And just even the fact that you still have you know, I don't know, there's this yearly thing called Net Roots Nation, which is basically yep. where liberals come and yell at each other. And then you've got, you know, kind of like the intercept yelling at about the fact that like David Frum is still has still never apologized for his support for the Iraq war or something like that. Like you've got all that internal stuff. And the right has that too. Mm-hmm. The right is you know, you've still got people who are really upset about certain things. You still but like but at the same time, they all are like, Well, we all know that our enemy is the left. Yeah. And we're just all going to focus here. Now, I'm sure that at some point there could be something where it was like enough of a hullabaloo to kind of break that up. I think that the GOP has signed itself onto something it cannot control by just being like, well, if we just fight the left at absolutely everything, no one will know that we don't actually all like each other. You know, when you've got Trump and Mitch McConnell being like, we're great friends. I'm like, I don't believe you. Yeah. And especially because there are, you know, there are already conversations going on where like Newt Gingrich is like, I don't under why, under, I don't understand why Steve Bannon wants to primary these Republicans. I'm like, 
That's because you don't quite understand Steve Bannon, because you think mostly about how we should have colonies in space and going to Zeus. But, like, it's a very different relationship. Like, I think among the left there's this idea that if we could just hash out what at the deepest, most exis- the deepest bone level, what it meant to be liberal, then we'd win, and then we'd just solve everything. Yeah. Republicans and, well, Republicans and conservatives, I don't, they are linked, but I don't want to conflate the two, because a lot of times they do not, they're not happy with each other. Sure. They don't care for right now. And I think that that's, that's good. yeah, I think that that's why they went. Like, there was never, you know. They wanted Gorsuch. They wanted it, they right. wanted to tilt the Supreme Court, and they did. Right. And, you know, you had never Trumpers who were basically like, can't you see that Trump's not a conservative? And then the voters saying, like, can't you see that we just don't care? Like, it just isn't, it's not the same thing. Um, I'm actually writing something about this, um, but Tucker Carlson said in January of 2016, like, Republican voters know their party better than the Republican elites. And the elites have just basically been like, fine, you guys figure it out. Now, I think it will, you know, I don't think Bannon's primary attempts will work. I don't know if you remember, but in earlier 2016, uh, someone in Wisconsin, like a far-right Trump Republican, tried to primary Paul Ryan, and that went poorly. Yes. Like, it's it's just not, it might not Iron work. Iron stash, though. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. Um, but I think that that... By keeping everything focused on, like, we have to keep fighting those people, there's no need to start fighting among ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it kind of reminds me of, like, forming some sort of, like, military alliance. Like, you know, before World War One, you've got kind of, like, Austro-Hungary and Germany being like, well, you know, we're not very similar, but sure, we'll work together. What could possibly go wrong? And then, you know, some things go wrong. Um... One of the columns I really enjoyed you writing over the past few months was about virtue signaling. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I'm a uh, very sensitive, bleeding heart type, I get nervous about that. I'm like, mm-hmm. am I doing something nice or am I showing people that I'm doing something nice? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. And I'd like to think I'm doing nice, but who knows? I find it very interesting how this this term came to be and where it's gone. Because as you wrote in your column... Uh, somebody accused the Pope of virtue signaling. Right, right. Which is fantastic. And so I guess the question, the way they go about it, I would ask is, if people go to you and say, oh, you're not nice, you're just showing people that you're nice, it, it, it seems to me it can only be one of two things. Either they're flat out trolling. Right. Or they're saying, I literally don't understand what empathy is. I think that that's more what that is. Yeah? Because I think that there are, for some, for certain people... Their understanding, you know, I think that that's, you know, I have, I have like three, okay, I have three pet takes. One, the who is terrible. Michigan State can go to hell. No, it's number three. (laughs) Yes. Um, Three is that residential segregation is the greatest issue of our time. For one, it really is linked to the fact that because we surround ourselves with people whose problems and issues and wants and desires look like ours. Yep. When we hear about somebody else's problems and desires and issues, we just don't believe that that's a real problem. So, you know, when you had people, you know, I think that there was kind of this effort to go find Trump supporters in, like, West Virginia or something like that in 2016. And the story would always be, like, this person, you know, has lost their job three times and thinks that, like, the reason why they lost their job was because of immigration or something like that. But at no time was it like, hey, um, what's your favorite sports team? Do you like the Mountaineers? What do you th- what do you think about that offense? I don't know about that Big Twelve move. Still, like 
these conversations never happened because, mm. and then you were never really able to see them as like people who were kind of like you, oh, very different from you, but kind of like you, who could have had their own motivations and their own reasons for making those decisions. It was kind of like, well, they just should know better. And then you see that, you know, I think you see that largely on the right a lot of times where you have people whose understandings of race are very much like, well, you know, I don't live or go to school or work with any black people, but I've seen these angry black people who are riding in the streets and it must be because there's something wrong with them. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if you actually knew or went to school with or worked with or had an next door neighbor who's African-American who could talk about like, hey, you know, when my kid borrows my car, I'm not worried about him, like, getting an accident. I'm worried about him getting stopped by the cops for something. That's my biggest concern. But also, do you want to come over and watch the game later? Do you want to talk about, like, the fact that our other neighbor's stupid fence keeps falling down and how we're going to deal with that? Right. You know, I grew up in an area that was not very well off, but was very, like... Diverse, quote unquote. Yeah. And they're, you in know, Cincinnati. Our, yeah, in Cincinnati. And our next door neighbors had moved up from Tennessee and mm-hmm. were white. And um, there were always like 17 people living in the house. And I, I remember um, one of the daughters' names were, name was Renee. And everybody called her Nay, which when yelled sounds like Jane. So when I was a little kid, there were all these times where they'd yell, Nay. And I'd yell out my window, What? <laughs> but like, you know, for them, like, they and our family, like, everyone just kind of moved together because, we, you know, we were, none of us were very wealthy. Like, they, you know, my parents were college educated and their parents weren't, but it didn't particularly matter. Yeah. Like, we lived next door, we swam in their pool sometimes. You know, if they needed to borrow, like, some sort of something, they could. If we did, we could. And that was like, kind of how things worked for us. And I think for a lot of people... That's not how that works. Their understanding of what other people want is very much based on not believing them at kind of the what they say. You know, it must be something else. It must be that they actually want to take my money or take my freedom or take my something guns. away. Yeah, or take my guns or take something away from me and not... I just want something different for me and my family the same way you would want something different for you and your family. Is it literally that if we don't live near somebody, we can't get that? What about would reading a book do that? I mean, I, I think I, in some senses, I, I almost has to be that deeper experience. Like, you know, you have people who are like, well, I've read about Martin Luther King, so I think I understand him. I'm like, I don't think that that's the same thing. Yeah. Because especially because someone like Martin Luther King, who can be somehow conflated into like this, you know... Martin Luther King never protested and like, sir, do you know anything? About yeah. Anything? Like, oh, look yeah, at Hoover's dossier on yeah, him. Like, yeah, you know? exactly. Like, the fact that the FBI tried to get him to kill himself. Mm-hmm. Like, that was kind of the whole point. Um, and so, I think that it really does have to be that experiential knowledge, which I think is extremely challenging because I think that there are a lot of communities in the United States where that's just not going to happen. And you can't ask people to move to be like, to make them understand other people better like that. No, like be... my kids are in school and I like right, this restaurant. Yeah. I'm not going Yeah, anywhere. yeah. And your kids, you know, you like your kids' school or something yeah. like that. And I think that that's one of the things that's that's particularly challenging. I think that that's something... Um, it's interesting because, you know, I went to, like, a very much all-white high school and things like that. And, like, even just those experiences of having people who, like... 
having people who would say things and not know that they might be offensive at all. And I would tell them and be like, oh, I'd never really thought about that. And I'm like, of course you wouldn't have. Yeah. Like at no point in your entire life have you come, like, have you come across anyone who is not, it was interesting because it was mostly white and Indian, um, like Indian American. Yeah. yeah. Um, because they're in Westchester, Ohio, there's a very large community of Indian American families who yeah. have moved like 40 here, like 40 years ago or something know. like that. And then, um, a lot, you know, you have, and it just, it was interesting because there's this idea that like that kind of experiential knowledge, I feel like it's almost a necessity. And I think in some ways that's kind of what I try to do in my writing and online, which is why, like, I think that there's a lot of conversation of like, you can just, I, I never block people. I will meet people sometimes, but I never block anyone mm-hmm. because I just don't see if I believe that you are a real, actual human being, I believe that at some point we could probably find something we would agree on. Hmm. At some point. Now, with a lot of people, that's, you know, like, I'm probably... I'm sure Richard Spencer and I enjoy the delights of ravioli, but I don't really want to have a conversation with him about it. That would just be like, okay, you want to set up a white ethno state, but have you had this lasagna? <laughs> like, that's not going to work. But I do think that there's, there is some <coughs> common ground to be found However, the other part of that is that I think that a lot of times the people who are like, you know, I want to find common ground are very much like, I want to find common ground by not talking about things that make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Specifically issues of race. And I think that that's, that's really difficult when you, you know, you kind of put the onus on African Americans and other people of color to kind of like have this conversation among ourselves and then have kind of, and then you, you bring it to white people and they're like, I don't want to talk about this. Why don't you read this black guy who says that I don't have to talk about this? And I'm like, that's, no, that's not how this is going to work. You inject history into a lot of your pieces. Yep. And, uh, you also mentioned the idea of arguments that we wouldn't have thought of before. And you wrote a piece that was an argument that I hadn't thought of before, mostly because I didn't know about the history. Right. because I'm Canadian, although I don't know that all Americans would know about this, which is the history of gun control right. in America. And, uh, gun control, in your piece, you lay out that it had to do with the fact that people were, white people were scared yep. to death, that in an era of radicalized black folks, that they would all arm themselves. Right. And they're like, well, hell no, we're going to yeah. do something about that. So I guess the first question would be, how did that come to be? And the second question would be, is it that they stopped being afraid that they were going to be radicalized? Because obviously gun control means something right. totally different now. I think that, you know, I don't think that stopped. Okay. Because I think that much of the the new impetus behind efforts to kind of liberalize gun ownership are because of this idea of hypothetical black people coming for you. And, like... And, you know, I think you see that kind of the NRA, which has decided to just meander into this culture warrior stance, which is fascinating because if you look at old NRA advertisements, it very much was like, I'm a sportsman. Like, you know, you go enjoy shooting pigeons or something like that. And then, you know, when they moved out of D.C. into Virginia, it became very much of like, I want to shoot a black person who comes anywhere near my property. And so that's very much like, you know, if riots come, I want to be able to defend my family, which is interesting because, you know... If riots came and African Americans wanted to defend their family in like 1895 and the, you know, an era of the most lynchings in American history, yeah. be like, well, life's tough. And so that's where you see, you know, kind of the attempt to ban so-called like Saturday night specials and kind of cheaper guns yeah. because gun ownership was supposed to be something that like you had to achieve. And at the same time, you've got, 
you know, people like Ida B. Wells and before her Frederick Douglass talking about, like, get a Winchester. Get a win- it's the only thing that's going to make you, that will ensure your physical safety and basically your physical equality with white people. Yeah. Is if you have the ability to kill someone who comes near you. And especially, you know. But, I mean, it was, they, if they came near you, they would kill you. I mean. Right. Right. There exactly. is a little sense of that now, but it's. It's not quite what it was in 1893. Right, right. And I think that there very much is this... It's interesting because I think that the story of gun control, you know, when you had people... Like, the ban on open carry in California was because of the Black Panthers. And I think that that's that's something I do bring up in the article. Like, Black Lives Matter has said very little little about guns and gun control because any efforts... I mean, I think that that's something that goes to... um, And I think this is definitely more of a libertarian argument, but... um, that efforts to to attempt to do something about one of our constitutional rights usually hurt the people who need that right the most. Hmm. So efforts to kind of put limits on, like, free speech, for instance. Like, the free speech they're coming for is not going to be, like, Jeff Sessions's. No. It's going to be, like, DeRay McKissons or something like that, or someone from Black Lives Matter. And with gun control, the guns that are going to be attempted to be controlled aren't going to belong probably to, like, a, you know, middle-aged white lady. It's going to belong to, oh, you know, Marissa Alexander in, Flo- in Florida, who, you know, shot at her abusive husband, and then was like, I stood my ground, and Florida was like, that's not what we meant. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got these cases in which the Castle Doctrine only applies to certain people, and so I think that that's something, you know, I've said on Twitter that if we're going to do the sec- the First or the Second Amendment, we got to do it fucking right. Like, we got to, like... We we said this, so it has to mean that. Like, in the letter of the law, for everybody, all the people, that's what it means. Um, there is an argument that's been put forth lately about Confederate statues, that mm-hmm. if we remove Confederate statues, we are erasing history. No, we're not. People have books. So this is not... I, I guess I would ask the same question. Is this another disingenuous argument? It's just like, I think no, it we is. want to be racist and that's it? I think that is. Yeah. And also the fact that a lot of the statues that are put up, it's not like, you know... The statues of, like, Nathaniel Bedford Forrest, that's, you know, the one that looks, there's, I can't remember what it is, but it looks, it looks demonic. Um, I can't, I think it's in Tennessee, I can't remember. But, like, that was not put up as, like, ah, yes, to remember our Confederate dead. That was look, put up as, like, look at this great guy who formed the Klan. Yeah. Like, these were not put up to be, like, you know, many of these were not put up to be, like, let us mourn the dead and... You know, remember their lives, remember how many people missed them, and hope that this kind of violence never happens again. It was like, this war definitely had nothing to do with slavery, and was definitely awesome, and definitely the South should have won. Like, and I think that that's something, um, I wrote a piece for MTV talking about how the North won the war, but the South won the conversation. Yeah, that's where that comes from, yeah. Because that lost cause mythology of just being like, you know, you still have people, it drives me nuts on a very personal level. I had someone on Facebook who was, like, posted her wedding photos, and she had taken her wedding photos at, like, a southern plantation. Oh, yeah. like... This is, happens all the time. Oh, it happens all the time, and I'm just like... So, and supposedly letting people do this, too, because it's pretty or whatever. Oh, I'm sure yeah. it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, But also, like, you know, that's, like, where, you know, my ancestors were actual physical slaves. Yes! And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's delightful, but, you know... Um, my family died there. Like, they worked until they died there. And I lost so, my family in the Holocaust. It'd be like yeah. somebody saying, I'm going to Treblinka for my Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, like people are not going to dock out to get their engagement. No. Unlo- 
God, that would be that would be maybe the thing that's that the next see. step. I feel like that's a, that's the social media thing that Twitter is just like we got it. We, well, we, we should or, we should erase just throw this. it away. Yeah. Throw it away. But um, yeah, I think very much, and especially because this idea that like, oh, if we take down these statues, people wouldn't know who these people are. And I'm like, people know who like, you know, in Germany it was interesting because there are people like, oh, there are no monuments to like famous Nazis. I'm like. Well, there are a couple, there are a couple of, like, buildings named after, like, Erwin Rommel. Yeah. But honestly, for a lot of people, I think Rommel was, like, he was a great military leader who didn't really approve of anything and was kind of induced into committing suicide. Right. So, I think that that's a separate thing. But also the fact that, like, you know, I've studied a lot about Nazi Germany, specifically um, the Eastern Front and the Battle of Stalingrad. And part of the point of denazification was... One, there was a, like, U.S. directive in occupied territories after the war that was, like, take down statues of these people. Like, it is about, because otherwise they will become memorials. That's why, like, um, there are a couple of, I think, believe it's uh, Rudolf Heydrich, who was the hangman of Czechoslovakia, I believe. I might have gotten that wrong. But um, he was shot by partisans um, in, I believe it's Operation Anthropod. Um, but he, you know, there was a very careful effort that it's hard to find where he's buried mm-hmm. because they were like, this cannot be a memorial. Like the bunker where Hitler shot himself and Ava Brown and then his bodies were burned outside. It's, yeah. it's a parking lot. Yeah, it's yeah. it's not, yeah. you're not, you no. can't go there. No. Like people have tried to look around and it's, it's interesting also because a lot of the kind of those, even there was this idea that, uh, Albert Speer, who's kind of Hitler's architect, um, who wrote Inside the Third Reich, which is actually behind me, which is very funny because the page that explains why he became a Nazi is literally like two paragraphs long. Cause it's <laughs> like, well, my wife and I were canoeing and then I joined the 40 and then like all this other stuff happened. And he's writing this in Spandau prison, basically being like, I just need to like make myself look good, which is why that all these, inter- he's, he had so many interviews before he died. But anyway. Why you watching so, his legacy? Yeah, and basically to be like, it wasn't really my fault. Yeah, and I was following so, orders. Yeah, and so it's interesting because there are all these structures. So there was supposed to be, they were supposed to kind of raise Berlin and create this ideal city called Germania. And there are still structures that were built by Speer's kind of test because Hitler wanted things that were like the most massive, like basically like the Colosseum three times over. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because all of those structures, like they tried to build some of the foundations for them and they just started sinking. And right now, like, they're still, like, basically dissolving into the earth in Germany, Mm. which I feel like is appropriate. But anyway, there was, the process of denazification was basically, like, we're going to educate you so much about what happened that you're going to be sick of it, and then we're going to do it some more. And then, you know, that's why in West Germany, there was such an effort to be, like, this is what happened. This is what you did. You know, making, essentially, the mayors of German towns that were, like, literally next to death camps tore the death camps. And there were, there's at least one case where the mayor of a town and his wife came home and hung themselves. Because they were basically like, we, you know, we said we didn't know, but how could we not have known? It was just too much. Yeah. But this effort at denazification, one of the first things is that, you, you know, even if, you know, m- millions of German lives were lost. You know, even the Wehrmacht was not, and especially towards the end of the war, like, there were a lot of non-Nazis in the Wehrmacht at the time. Yeah. But there are still, you know, you can't put up a memorial to like, ah, you know, that was actually something that's um, super controversial that Reagan did, where he went to, in like in the mid-80s, he went to Bitburg, which is a cemetery 
for that featured a lot of SS graves. Mm. And his entire thing was like, well, they're a non-SS too. And then, you know, Ellie Wiesel was like, no, don't, <laughs> don't do that. Don't. You want to get Ellie Wiesel mad at you. That's yeah, no, he was not happy. He was very upset. But um, it's interesting to me that there's this, you know, this idea here that like these Confederate one, we are much further removed from the Confederacy than Germany is from Nazism. But also this idea that, like, oh, the statues, you know, that's our, that's our history or something like that. I'm like, well, you know, for many people who, you know, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers fought, you know, they fought on the Eastern Front. They froze to death as part of the Sixth Army Encirclement. Like, that happened. And yet... Like, West Germany was like, we're not going to do it. And East Germany, too, but that was a separate thing, yeah. because the Soviets were like, absolutely not. Um, and so I do think it's a disingenuous argument. I do think that we need to remember that the Civil War was not, like, a valiant thing. The Civil War was horrific. This, You know, Andersonville? Like, the, some of the most horrific events in human history took place during the Civil War at a time where we figured out how to kill lots of people, but not how to keep lots of people alive. And also we wanted a lot of people dead. Yeah. And, you know, so many, if you read the explanations for why so many states left the Union, it was over the issue of slavery. And moreover, not just the issue of slavery, but the issue that you were attempting to make the white man equivalent to the Negro. And that's the history that I feel as if a lot of these people want to erase. They want to think of it in terms of kind of like, you know, oh, you're fighting for your family or something it's like that. It's a noble that. cause, yeah. Yeah, it's a noble cause. I'm like, I'm sure, you know, and I am certain that the men and and some women who fought on behalf of the Wehrmacht towards the end of the war, when the Soviets were in, getting close to Berlin and the Soviets were basically taking out, you know, eight, you know, five, six, seven years of war yeah. on the lives and bodies of German families... I'm sure that was kind of the story they told themselves, too. Yeah. But it's neither of those are accurate. Like, it was not a good war. It was not a lost cause. It was a war fought over something terrible, which is human bondage, and to attempt to evade that fact and then claim that other people are trying to erase history is just ridiculous. So sometimes I come into a piece and I'm expecting something. And you wrote a piece, uh, I don't remember if the headline was Jaywalking Wild Black, but yep. that, was, that was the implication. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Here comes guns blazing. And I've, I've yeah. worked before and whatever, and I, but in my mind I was like, okay, this is going to be more strident more, because it's, it's such a provocative way right. to frame an article. And you did what you do, which is that you wrote about history and you put in data and you made compelling arguments. Right. But you didn't come out with a shotgun and start blasting people. Right, no. And then I'll read Coates. Yeah. Coates, who uses data too, yeah. but he's going for it. He's like, right. fuck it all. We're, we're doing it. Right. Is there a part of you that's like, I need to fuck it all? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm so angry. I, this is driving me crazy. Because your style is, first of all, it's like exactly, it works perfectly for me. I write about yeah. trivial things like sports, but I'm data, data, data. Yeah. And let me show you the argument. Do you have a temptation to flip to the other side? Can you even do data and raw anger at the same time and do it really well. I think that for me, um, I think, you know, I really enjoy Coates' writing. I think that anger is necessary. I think that that's something... I think for me, because I recognize... You know, I'm always attuned to the voices and the perspectives of history. Yeah. And so, for example, 
when writing about something like that jaywalking case, mm-hmm. I think that I think about what's taking place now. But I'm also thinking about 1919 and the race riots in Chicago, in which you know a black kid tries to swim at a white beach and people die as a result. Mm-hmm. And I think about you know the experiences of my grandfather who served in a segregated unit. He was in the third wave to invade Normandy. Uh, his boat got blown up, so he had to swim in, and he never swam again. Wow. He, ref- you know, he he would not. He would take baths, and that was about it. Wow. Um. And, you know, he gave his medals to his children to play with because he was like, this, it wasn't worth it. And, you know, you had this idea, a lot of African Americans had this idea, you know, there was a kind of the um, double victory mm-hmm. that if we won over there, we'd win at home. And I think in some ways that eventually wound up being true because I think that you see that a lot of people who came back from World War II and still experienced discrimination, especially because they'd had the moment of going to somewhere like Paris where people, it, where it's just, it's a different thing. It's a totally different experience. And so that was able to happen. But, you know, I think about moments at which, you know, someone told me recently that, like, you know, when the shit got really real. And I think that I am cognizant of the fact that this is not that. And I, for me, I think it's important to impart with data and impart with research and impart with my writing that, you know, there is... It, there is something better that we could have, but that our history has been so much worse. Mm. Like, it's interesting because I think Coates' work is so important because his discussions of blackness and black identity in the United States are something that a lot of people have never really thought about. And he is as angry as he has every right to be. And in some ways, I am too. But in other ways, I just keep thinking about the moments that are possible for me and possible for my family. I think another thing that's interesting is because I do not, you know, Copes has talked about how he, you know, his father was a Black Panther. Mm -hmm. And he comes from, I actually saw him speak last Monday at a Metropolitan AMA to release his book. And he talks about, he comes from kind of that Black separatist legacy. I do not. Yeah. You know, my dad... Um, is no, your parents are hippies. Yeah, my parents are hippies. My dad went to Northwestern. Um, he was a history major. We spent a lot of time as a child with watching World War II documentaries and then listening to Gil Scott Heron records together. Like, we... It's a very different experience. So I think yeah. that that really shapes... You know, that shapes how I write and how I view things. But I do have the experience of him, you know, me being upstairs and him coming home from work and talking about how some guy came to the library and wanted to get my dad, who is an adult, and he wanted to get that boy to help him and just kept saying it. And, like, why won't that boy help me? This right is now? not 1925. No, either. this would have been, like, 1994. Yeah, right. You know, I would have been, like, seven. Yeah. And, um, you know... Just knowing that that still existed and exists. And so I think in some ways, because our, the, our racialized experiences are so different and more subtle, but just as dangerous, I think I I want my writing to be more subtle, but just as responsive. Because, you know, it's not, you know, my, the, the clan burned down my grandma's family farm um, outside of Atlanta in mm. the early, in, you know, uh, in the early 1930s, and you know, 
that that's not my experience, but the clan did gather not far away from DC in Charlottesville yeah. and a woman did die. So that that's my experience. And so I think that the 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 rhetoric and the kind of the means of writing that I use has to be more reflective of Charlottesville than of my grandmother's farm. So I got a couple more I want to ask you. We did one third rail, which is politics, and I'll ask you about religion. Okay, why that not? Great. So uh found your blog and you wrote an interesting piece it was a response to a gentleman talking about uh, your experience as, as someone who's gay right and about the Catholic Church right and ultimately you left the Catholic Church right so on a very basic level I guess what I would ask you is can we reconcile religion in which pretty much all religions are not super cool about same-sex partnerships right with same-sex partnerships, can one continue to go to church, mosque, synagogue, whatever, be out, be happy to be out, and it all works fine? Right. Is that possible? Yeah. How? Um, I think that that's something that um, I've found. Uh, so it's funny because I wrote that, and I it's interesting because I thought, you know, I'm never really going to go to church again. That's it. Yeah. But I have, I think, still always had those questions. I'm a questioning person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something I've always been. It was actually one of the things that drove my parents crazy. Because, like, my nightmares as a child were just like, what if everyone on Earth is dead but we don't know it yet? Like, they're always, like, deeply, deeply <laughs> horrifying things. My parents were like, can't you have dreams about, like, monsters? <laughs> like, or my, puppies. Yeah, or something yeah. like that. And so... You know, it was interesting because there's actually a church near us called Foundry United Methodist Church, and I was not raised a Methodist, but um, Foundry was among the first to start doing um, same-sex marriages, and my wife and I had walked past there like 17,000 times, and about two years ago, you know, I was like, we should just go. I think it'll be nice for us, Like, and I was kind of like, I'm going to take you, but it was... Does she identify as religious? Um, Yes, she does. Um, I think she was raised Anglican in New okay. Zealand. Yeah, makes sense. New Zealand is if not a very religious place. Yeah. Um, I think it kind of has that kind of Commonwealth ancestry that you kind of get in England or something like that, where people are like, I'm Church of England, but like, eh. Yeah. But, um, so we went, and ever since then, you know, there are so many gay people there, and so many gay people huh. of faith. And that was something that I was really astounded by and it, it, it's interesting because you know as I as you know I always investigate my ideological priors mm-hmm. and so there are a lot of people you know like Rod Dreher at the American Conservative who's basically like you cannot be gay and Christian you yeah. just can't do it yeah and there are a lot of people who think you can't be gay and Jewish and well gay and Orthodox Jewish which I think is yes. a separate yes. experience totally from being reformed yeah um which is interesting because I think I've learned more about Orthodox Judaism over the last year than I had before, and I think it's interesting just kind of those those relationships. Mm-hmm. And you know, you cannot be gay and Muslim. And I think that that is from that perspective, it's like you know, the, when people talk about like picking and choosing from the Bible, but at the same time, I think that picking and choosing from the Bible is kind of the American Christian experience in general. You know, there's a lot of stuff like. <clears throat> You know, the um, out-of-wedlock birth rate at Jamestown in, uh, like within the first 10 years was something like 40%. Like, there was just a lot of, like, yes, this is great, and yet this is not what's happening. And so, but I think for me, the personalization of my own faith and realizing that, you know, I want to live the very best and most moral life I can, and I am also a gay person, 
who is married. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that comes as, you know, I am a married, like, we are the most married. Like, <laughs> I love my wife more than I can possibly say in the whole universe. Awesome. And, but we're also, like, it's so funny because, you know, we have, we want to do married things. Like, we want to, like, go on double dates with people and we go to the farmer's market and, like, we are interested in every opportunity to improve our marriage and talk about our marriage and make that better. And I think that that's something that actually has made going back to church even better because mm. to experience that as a married couple, as something that we can talk about together, we pray together, we are, you know, close to God together. And I think that that's been something I never really expected to have. And I think that, you know, a lot of the anger I had at the Catholic Church was not really anger at the Catholic Church. It was an anger at myself for not being able to do what I thought the Catholic Church wanted me to do. You know, because, I, you know, I went to Catholic school for from kindergarten until high school, um, until, like, obviously senior high school. And I felt like, you know, I always felt kind of like it was like a weird comedy sketch that, like, you know, when I was in, ki- you know, kindergarten, it was like, Jesus loves you so much, first grade. Jesus loves you so much, third grade. Jesus loves you, and <laughs> there's like some provisos and addendums and this asterisk, and this is it's a thing called original sin, which you know he handled. But then there's this other stuff mm-hmm. that you gotta handle. Um, which I th- it's also it's been very interesting going to a Methodist church because they're very like they have a ton of meetings, and Catholics don't have meetings. Yeah. We're basically like we'll leave it up to somebody else to tell us. But um, I think that 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 relationship has changed in a lot of ways, and like my views on that have changed since then. Two final questions. One is, uh, my favorite article that I've read by you is the Trump-Jackson piece. And it has nothing to do with Trump. And yes. It has nothing to do with Jackson. It's about the fact that we are searching for heroes all the time. And, right. And you are super inspirational in the piece. You're like, we're all heroes. And how do you affect change? You affect change if millions of people band together, right. not if one messiah figure right. rises up. Uh, and that can be hard to think right. that in this day and age because of what's going on. And, and it just seems more difficult. So I guess on a very basic level, uh, reassure me. I don't know that this, that this is true. I mean, I believed oh. your words at the time. I, so I, I just do. interviewed Charlie, just did a pop, Charlie Pierce. He said the exact same yeah. thing. I want to believe it, but I feel defeated sometimes. I, I think that we can see it in, you know, I'm a sucker for those like videos or something like that. That's like, you know, kids doing the right thing or high school football teams, like, being good to one another, yeah. because I think that the reason why I'm a sucker for that is that, you know, I I do believe in the inherent goodness of people. For a long time, I thought I did not. Hmm. For a long time, I thought, like, people suck. Like, we are, you know, I kind of had this very Hobbesian model of just, like, people are garbage. And, you know, this kind of Calvinist model that, like, people are garbage who need to be improved. But... I do think inherently, and I've seen this in times of personal challenge for myself and personal challenge for others, that people will generally, like, you know, we each have the capacity to do something really good, and we usually want to. Mm. Like, you know, the reason why the stories of people being terrible become more prevalent is because they're remarkably rare. Like, you know... Not to get too visceral with it, but there aren't that many serial killers. Yeah. That's why many serial killers are famous. Yeah. Like, there there was only one Ted Bundy. Like, it's not that widespread. But there are a lot of stories of people who are, like, really good people. There are a lot of stories about people who, like, donate food or 
make sure, you know, their shut-in neighbors are have enough to eat or being taken care of or who are just good in general. And I think that that's, that's what reassures me is the fact that, you know, the stories you hear are the stories that are told because they're rare or because they're particularly interesting. And as someone who's, you know, I love reading true crime stuff. Like, of course I'm into that. Mm-hmm. But I also know that that's not the story of humanity uh, as a whole. People are interested in kind of the darkest of our nature because most of us generally don't experience that all the time. Yeah. And thank God for that. But yeah. <laughs> I think that that's where I find hope. And one last question, which I do at the end of every, every podcast, is I always ask the guests for a life tip, and I get a wisdom, a, a, a clever something. It can be super serious and heartfelt. It could be something super silly. The immortal Trey Kirby said that he, uh, as far as he's concerned, once he gets to the airport, his vacation has begun, so go ahead and eat 19 Cinnabons if you want to, right, which okay. is fantastic. Um, so whatever. It's something that if I meet you, and I say, oh, I'm Jonas. It's really nice to meet you. I'm Jane. And you say yeah. X about yourself. This is quintessentially Jane. Um, let's see. Hmm. Do laundry as often as possible. Oh, I like that. Laundry is great. And always having clean clothes is like, that is a something that you can make the full crumb of your life. Like, if everything has gone horribly wrong, you'll always have clean clothes. How do you motivate yourself to do it? Oh, I I love doing laundry. I've always loved doing it. Really? When I was like, that was like the first chore I learned how to do even before I was too, like, I was too short to look over the washer. But I just love doing laundry because that is something like, you know... The world can descend into such crises, but I will always have clean clothes. And that is something really nice to look to. It's always nice to have something about, you know, something around which you can kind of just tinge yourself. Like, well, you know, things are tough, but I have soup in the refrigerator. Things are hard, but I've cleaned my apartment. Things are difficult, but I have done laundry. So I recommend doing laundry as often as you can. Seriously, one of the three most profound things I've heard. It's the simplest thing, but I love it. It's great. We're done. All right. Awesome. Jay Coaston, uh, a pleasure to meet you. And uh, I'm a big fan, and I'm glad that I'm able to do this. Thanks so much.